This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill, and I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. I hope you're doing well. We are uh, having a lot of rain up here in the northern part of the state, but I hope it's good down there. And uh, But we're really pleased to have what I think will be a great show today, a very informative show, uh, with Attorney Marsha Rucker who is the Birmingham Regional Attorney for the EEOC. And Ms. Rucker, would you please tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in the laws regarding employment discrimination? Well, yes. Uh, First of all, uh, again, my name is Marsha Rucker. I'm the Regional Attorney for the Birmingham District. I've been in this capacity for about uh, going on five years. I became Regional Attorney um, after the illustrious Emanuel Smith retired in 2000, December of 2016. Um, as far as how I came to the EOC, I started as a trial attorney in 2008 and then from there became supervisory trial attorney in 2015. Um, uh, I went to law school with the idea of doing great things and trying to change the world via the law. Um, my background is uh, I came out of legal services. I worked for the Cleveland Legal Aid Society for a number of years and then uh, took somewhat of a career detour and went to work for two large housing authorities in the Northeast, but always had a mind uh, for civil rights and a heart and desire to right wrongs and to um, to improve justice, to, to mete out justice. Well, we appreciate that. I mean, I, I, I feel humbled because I, I also wanted to make a difference, but I teach tax. So it's really what you've done has actually had an impact. <laughs> That's a difference. That's a difference. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, can you tell us a little bit? I know I know our listeners probably have heard of the EEOC, but can you tell us a little bit about what it is and, and what it does? Yes, the EEOC is a federal agency, and our mission and role is to eradicate uh, employment discrimination. Uh, There are several federal anti-discrimination employment statutes uh, in which we enforce. Uh, We have over 15 different uh, district offices, uh, and every uh, person in this country has a right who's employed or seeking employment um, to file a charge of discrimination. And once a charge is filed, we investigate, and if we find cause, we try to Um, We try to resolve those charges through conciliation, and in some circumstances, the EEOC will litigate uh, cases. So um, you mentioned uh, it serves employees, but also serves um, the uh, people applying for jobs. And, and that is cor- that is ahead, correct. Um, employment it, it, it impacts everyone, and so if you're an applicant and feel you're a victim of 
uh, discrimination, you can file a charge. If you're a former employee and think that your former employer is retaliating against you, uh, you can file a charge. Uh, if you feel that uh, your union is discriminating against you or you're seeking employment through an employment agency, again, the EEOC is the agency in which you would file a charge of discrimination. This morning, we are talking about employment discrimination with Marsha Rucker from the EEOC. I feel like I'm an expert because I just finished my webinar and got my certificate that everyone at MPB has to take every year uh, about uh, uh, discrimination. So uh, ask me. No, no, really, don't don't ask me. <laughs> this is this is all about Marsha, and you can send her emails today. Our email address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. And, you know, Marsha, I was thinking, you know, um, I, I know there are a lot of people in our current economy who may not fall under the category of employees because they're freelancers, they're doing a lot of different jobs. Is there protection for them under the EEOC, or is, is that different? Well, you know, it depends, and that's an issue, of course, that the EOC and other federal agencies uh, is looking at, given that we are uh, now in the 21st century, and we know that there's the gig economy. And so, um, you know, I would say it's situation situational, and it would depend, you know, on the circumstances. I always say there's no harm in feeling, uh, if you feel you're a victim of discrimination, and uh, coming in, speaking with one of our counselors, and we can advise. But again, as you know, our economy changes, we're reliant um, on freelance work. Um, I, I would say uh, come in, get counsel. Um, but you are correct that if you are an independent contract, independent contractor, you may not have coverage under the laws we enforce. But again, given the fluid nature and the dynamics of having a gig economy, I don't want to say blanketly you don't have coverage. Contact one of our counselors, and then you can be advised. That's great advice, and uh, you know, because I think I think it's hard for people to know sometimes that they're an employee. But you know, I think um, a lot of employers could view the EOC kind of as the, the, the enemy in a way. And, and that's not really true. And in fact, you, you provide a lot of resources for small businesses. Could you talk a little bit about those? Sure. Um, to your point um, about uh, the enemy, I, I'm not going to make any editorial comments of, uh, of any sort, but we are an agency of the federal government. We work on behalf of the public in which we serve. And so, uh, we're here to serve employees, applicants, and notably employers, including small business employers. And we have a wealth of resources available uh, for small business, for all business. Uh, one thing that I would point to is to look at our website. I think that we have one of the best websites of any federal agency with a wealth of information. And so I would preface anything I say is to make sure you first go to our website. As far as small business resources, um, we have posters available. And we also have a small business, uh, what we call a small business liaison in each of our 15 districts. And the Birmingham district, which uh, comprises most of Mississippi, all of Alabama and parts of Florida, our small uh, business liaison is Terry Peters. 
um, her office is located in Jackson, and she ha- hails or has comes has come to us recently from our Charlotte district office. And so she's not only tapped in regionally, she's tapped in nationally and is a great resource. Well, we have a question or a comment on the line already. Let's go to Brandon and speak with Kenny. Kenny, thanks so much for being part of In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Um, I had a question about I had filed a a case, but I didn't get too much help. Uh, I couldn't find an attorney around, but it consisted of me working for a school system, and a job came open, and I applied for the job. And and I was told in private to pull my application, but then when the job came open again, I applied for the job, and this time they changed the name of the job uh, from a director of maintenance to a uh, to a foreman of maintenance, and then they told me I was too qualified, too well qualified because I had been director of maintenance over. Uh, well, we are historic centers, and and I had four years of college, and but I uh, I applied and and the EOC gave me the right to sue. Uh, I went through this uh, situation. I ended up filling out my going to court myself and as my own lawyer, but I was kicked out and I'm treated bad because the. Uh, because the uh, court system, uh, because I didn't have the computer situation, I just wondered, can you change the name of something to keep, to discriminate like that? Uh, as was stated, I believe at the top of the show, I can't give legal advice and I can't speak um, to specific charges or cases. I can say that if you file the charge, and you were given a right to sue, um, that probably was the appropriate course of action um, and that you had the opportunity, and as you did so, is to file a case in court. Once you file a case in court, the ball, if I can use a sports, sports analogy, is reset. And so when you go to court on your case, um, the judge uh, who hears your case hears that case de novo. And, and that means it's under a new review. And so, um, you know, I believe, as you described, you follow the appropriate po- process of, as to filing a charge and then taking your right to sue and filing a lawsuit. Um, I, I'm sorry for you that the, you didn't get the result that you wanted, but at least it seems like you were able to take advantage of the process and file a charge and then go from there. Marsha, do when someone does sue, uh, and Richard, you may be able to speak to this. When is this a small claims kind of thing where you don't need representation? Um, could it have been uh, possible? Are, are claims more successful if they have an uh, attorney representing them? Is there any kind of uh, uh, statistics on this? I'm not aware of any statistics, but any time you file under a federal anti-employment statute, that's a case that has to be brought in federal court. 
um, it's what we would call a federal question issue. So you couldn't go to small claims court. Um, as a citizen, you're always entitled to represent yourself. I know that at the uh, at um, the EEOC, at least in our district, uh, when folks are given a right to sue, we maintain a voluntary uh, attorney referral list, and a person can consult uh, on their own accord with an attorney from that list, or choose an attorney, uh, you know, or choose an attorney of their own liking or choice. Um, but again, as far as what court, if any any federal anti-discrimination act claim has to be brought in federal court. And, and, and one so, more question I have on, on beh- helping me to understand Kenny's situation. I, I don't know, you know, the re- result, what uh, happened with his court case, but the 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 prejudice or not prejudice is that something that that happens that if if you're not successful sometimes could could he get a representation to a system and file again is that a common practice do you know well i can't say whether or not it's a common practice but and i can't give legal advice or opine to his specific case but if his case was dismissed without prejudice, without prejudice means that you have an opportunity to file again. With prejudice means there is a final determination, a final adjudication. I appreciate learning those terms. That's something I'm not familiar with. Kenny, um, we wish you best luck on getting your situation resolved. Thank you so much for calling in. You can always send us an email with your questions, legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're discussing employment discrimination with Marcia Rucker, attorney for the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. She mentioned their website. Where can you read additional information from the EEOC? I'm going to tell you next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is In Legal Terms. Now, not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live, so if you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on our website. Inlegalterms.com mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill, and I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Employees and job applicants 
Also, employers can find lots of information. We've teased it. The website is, it's really hard to remember, eeoc.gov. That was a joke. It's not hard to remember. eeoc.gov. This morning, we're talking about employment discrimination. We're very glad to have Marsha Rucker, attorney with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, with us here today. This is great. It's great information. And, you know, I, I really think one of the, the most important things that came out of that last segment, we feel bad that Kenny went through his situation. But as Marcia said, I mean, they, they provide a list of attorneys, many of whom will do uh, help someone for free. Uh, many of whom, if they don't do it for free, they'll certainly do it for a reduced price. And so going into federal court is something that you want to have, um, I, in my opinion, representation uh, because it, it can be difficult to navigate sometimes. But, um, yeah, Marshall, let's talk a little bit about uh, a recent, really recent case um, that happened just a, a week ago, I believe. Um, EEOC just recently secured a, I said recently several times, $825,000 settlement against Birmingham Beverage. And so what, what happened in that case? That was a discrimination case. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, well, the lead charging party in that case, Ronnie Johnson, uh, was a longtime employee of Birmingham Beverage. He was a route, he was a route driver, and he had ambitions and desires to become a route salesman, a position that had more prestige and paid more money. Uh, and it was his observation during his many years of employment uh, that uh, whereas he is African-American, uh, didn't uh, wasn't promoted into the position that there were uh, white applicants who came in some just months in the door and who were promoted into this very lucrative position. And so he filed a charge with uh, the commission. Uh, the, the, the charge wasn't able to be resolved at the administrative level. And then we filed a lawsuit. What's interesting to note is when the EEOC files a lawsuit, we don't follow. We don't file lawsuits in every case. In fact, nationwide, we file less than 200 lawsuits a year. And so, in 2017, we filed this lawsuit against Birmingham Beverage on behalf of Mr. Johnson and uh, other uh, black employees who were interested in promotion uh, to the route sales uh, route salesman position. And of course, on behalf of the public interest. And so, uh, for over three years, this case was litigated, and uh, we were able to uh, resolve the case by way of a consent decree without having to go to trial. And so, in some regards, uh, you know, Birmingham Beverages to be commended for, a, I know in the scheme of things, three years doesn't seem like an early resolution, but without res, uh, resorting to having to go to trial in this matter. Uh, but we consider the um, allegations very egregious, and we, we believe we got uh, really good relief for Mr. Johnson and the class of 34 other African-Americans, as well as for the public, which would include future applicants. In addition to the uh, $825,000 uh, that Mr. Johnson and the other applicant uh, 
uh, will share, uh, we um, were able to secure injunctive relief, meaning that Birmingham Beverage is required to amend its policies with regard to hiring and promotion, that it will train its managers and employees on what constitutes discrimination and the actions you can take to prevent it. And so we're very pleased with this settlement, and uh, we are encouraged in believing that Birmingham Beverage will um, abide by the terms of the, of, of the consent decree and that Mr. Johnson and others will have opportunities for promotion into that position. And you mentioned there were 34 uh, ultimate, along with Mr. Mr. Johnson, but what— um, how did they get standing? How does I mean, is there something they have to do to be part of that case? Uh, in this instance, uh, no. Um, uh, we uh, these folks were identified um, because uh, of the allegations. We knew there there were class allegations, and the class was identified. And so, if you're asking, did they themselves have to file an individual charge? The answer was no. But they they were identified as victims. Um, uh, of discrimination and um, were identified as class members. And I think that's a, that's important because I think a lot of them would not have even known that they should file uh, under those circumstances. So, you know, that was very, very helpful for them. Now, how, how, all right, so you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about it. You, you mentioned how you've gotten involved, the EEOC gets involved in discrimination cases, but it starts with Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Can you can you talk a little bit about that act and how it applies to employment? Well, Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act of 64, uh, 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 self-explanatory in the sense that, of course, the act was passed in 64, and the EEOC opened its doors uh, a year later. I believe in 65 is when the EEOC actually uh, was uh, opened its doors uh, and, and began accepting charges of, of discrimination. And Title Seven is one of uh, several statutes that we enforce, probably the most well-known. And under Title VII, uh, it, it, uh, discrimination can occur or is uh, deemed uh, based upon someone's protected characteristics, such as race, color, national origin, uh, and, and sex, uh, religion. Those are the things that we normally ascribe under Title VII. Of course, in addition to Title VII, we enforce other statutes, but I think historically, um, Title VII is probably our, our most well-known statute. And I think that's important just generally for people to understand is that Congress passes the law, but they, you know, they need somebody to enforce the law, and they need people uh, and, and organizations and, and uh, governmental agencies like the EEOC to enforce those laws. And so, you know, I think that had the Civil Rights Act of 1964 been passed without this mechanism, it would, it would have been impossible to enforce it uh, in employment. Um, yeah, and, and if I could just add, when you talk sure. about enforcement, it wasn't until uh, the early 70s, I believe 72, in which we had the authority to litigate. So we were able to take charges, do investigations, but uh, co Congress uh, Pat made it so that uh, when those things failed, <laughs> uh, early conciliation efforts, then we could uh, go into court and uh, and enforce the law. Well, it's, you know, I think I think people I think people think that when the law passes, or you know, I think about uh, uh, you know Brown versus Board of Education, 
declared uh, you know segregation, not you know constitutional in schools. But it's not like overnight there was desegregation. It took a lot of good work uh, by people to get there, and the same thing with employment. So, uh, and and that work continues. Yes, <laughs> yes, it does. Email us your questions. The address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're talking with Marsha Rucker, attorney for the EEOC, about employment discrimination. Okay, this is going to be completely off topic, but today is a very important day in Mississippi for you and your rights. I'm going to remind you what day it is next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. I'm Jen White with NPR. If you're fortunate enough to have collected a few classic cars over the years, here's a thought. Give them a new life by donating one or more to support this station. They'll be matched with interested buyers, collectors just like you who know a great car when they see one. You free up some space in the garage, the classic car gets a new home, and proceeds support this station. It's a win-win. Thanks in advance. Donate your car, motorcycle, boat, or RV by going to mpbonline.org. This is in legal terms. Now, not everybody has a chance to listen to our show live. So remember, you can find our podcasts. I've got Professor Richard Gershman, who is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. And we do hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast. Yet another way you can listen to the show. Remember, podcasts are just recorded audio, and there's different platforms that you can listen to. I happen to use Podcast Addict. I download it to my phone. I can touch a plus, and that lets me go somewhere to search for different podcasts. I typed in in legal terms in the search area. It brings up our show. I'm able to touch the photo of us. Well, it's not really a photo, but anyway, the logo, then subscribe. And then I'm also notified when any new episodes are loaded up. So today, today is Municipal Election Day in Mississippi. Polls are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And if you're in line at 7 p.m., you can vote. Absentee ballots returned by mail must be postmarked today or by today and received by your municipal clerk's office within five business days. And here's the kicker, folks. Please check your city's website for any COVID changes. There are quite a few in Jackson where I am voting for my choice for mayor 
and my not quite a choice because he's unopposed uh, ward for city council member. Uh, Richard, I, you'll need to check in Oxford to see if there are any polling stations that are closed. Oh, mine, the church closed, so now they're voting at the school where I vote, so now we've got two lines, but sometimes you stand in the wrong line, so it may be something new for you. So, uh, Richard, have you voted yet? No, I'm going to vote this afternoon, and I, sadly, I don't think the lines will be very big to be perfectly honest <laughs> with this election. But uh, and a big know, shout. Go ahead. Yeah, please. Oh, a big shout out to all those who do volunteer to man the polls. Our our democracy would not be possible without that, and. I super appreciate and always make a point to thank our poll workers. But this morning, we're not talking about that at all. We're talking about employment discrimination with our guest, Marsha Rucker, an attorney with the EEOC Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And we do have a call. It's Roger from Florence. Roger, we're so glad that you've called in today. What's your comment or question about EEOC? Well, good morning. Thank you for what you do. Uh, thanks for what you do. And thanks to your guest. I want to ask her if she knows uh, the current situation. I do mediations for EEOC complaints. And <coughs> one of the pressures that applies, and of course mediators like pressure that applies towards settlement, is that I'm told it's taking a year, year and a half, maybe longer, to get a case before an administrative law judge to actually hear the evidence and make a ruling on an EEOC complaint. My question for your guest is, uh, well, how is, what's that, what is that interval these days? Does it depend on the type of case? and what's being done about it. Well, thank you for your question. That deals with our public sector. And um, uh, in my helm or, or role as a regional attorney, we deal with matters against private, private litigants. But I can say overall, just based on what I know regarding, regarding public sector and the backlog, is that we've made extraordinary uh, strides to uh, work through our backlogs, uh, particularly the Birmingham district, I know has been recognized <laughs> as a leader in working through its backlog. And so, you know, I, I can just say that, um, you know, stay the course. Uh, we're trying to work things out. Uh, we're hiring uh, more judges. We're hiring more employees across the, the commission as a whole. And as uh, we ramp up, in terms of um, bodies, employees, uh, we're able to provide more effective service. So, um, so in those general terms, uh, I'm, I'm not certain as to the time frame, but I know that our agency is committed um, to working through um, the backlog as far as case scheduling. And not to be political, but. Uh, Everything, I guess, revolves around budgets and your government employees. And so if folks make sure they get their taxes in so that they can uh, help pay for all the, the workers that, that make our government uh, run as a, a well-oiled cog. Thank you, Roger. Thank you so much for calling in today. 
And there's, you know, when I, I hope that some of my students are listening to that because that means that EEOC will be hiring. And I know a lot of them are interested in civil rights and employment law. And so that would be a great opportunity to work with someone like Parsha uh, on these kind of cases. The other thing I want to say, actually, kudos to organizations, too, to these government agencies who kept themselves open during COVID. Marsha and I were talking before the show, and Marsha, y'all didn't miss a beat, it sounds like. No, in fact, we've been on 100 tele, uh, telework status since March 17th of 2020. Um, our doors have remained virtually open. Um, and uh, in terms of awards, uh, we've had some of the highest recoveries in our uh, agency's history. Um, and so, you know, we're open and doing the people's business. Uh, as someone had mentioned, uh, COVID has changed things, will continue to change things. At present, we're still on 100% telework, but I anticipate at some point we will be going back to the office. Uh, if you would like to initiate a charge, our charge intake procedure is highlighted and explained on our website. And so I would encourage you um, to not l let COVID or concerns about um, our office uh, being on telework status at, in any way uh, influence you not to file a charge if you feel like you've been a victim of discrimination. We're open, ready, trained, and, and, and willing to take um, on charges. Well, that is great. And, uh, and you mentioned, so we mentioned the Birmingham beverage case, which was a race uh, case, a case involving uh, discrimination because of race. But there, there are other types of discrimination that um, EEOC works to prevent and remedy. Uh, and, and can we talk a little bit about some of those specifically? Like, for example, what is age discrimination? Well, age discrimination uh, follows uh, the statute, the Age uh, and Employment Discrimination Act, I believe, of 1967. And what age discrimination is, is uh, if a person feels they were discriminated against or was discriminated against and they're over 40, uh, that they may have a valid claim for age uh, discrimination. So uh, the operative term is over 40. And, and so how do you establish that? It seems like, you know, I think the, the counter argument by the employer might be, well, you know, yes, this person was over 40, but they weren't showing up in, on time. There were, you know, there were, there were work-based reasons why maybe this person wasn't promoted. How do you, how do you sort through all of that? Well, I mean, we, set, we um, sift through that based upon, you know, what the, what the law is. And the law is you cannot use age as the but for reason to discriminate against somebody. So if an employer uh, has a, a non-discriminatory, non-protectual reason for taking some type of adverse action against an employee, uh, the statute would not protect that person. Uh, as you mentioned, if an employee, no matter their age, was not showing up for work, not, not performing up to an acceptable standard, they can't hide behind the statute. However, the reverse of that is uh, if they had a comparator who was doing the same thing, not showing up for work, not, not you know, um, doing some other things, if there's a valid comparator, that, that may not be, uh, that may not pass snuff. Uh, but in, in all seriousness, um, you know, the, the, any of our statutes don't shield a non-performing employee. But if you are not treating all employees or applicants the same, 
uh, then that's that's issue for concern, and we will investigate that. We have a couple of email questions, and we'll answer them on the air, then reply back to the individual in case they're not listening. If you have a phone call question, you can give us a call, one 877 mpb ring That's one 877-672-7464. Marsha, um, Marsha Rucker, attorney with the EEOC, is our guest. Marsha, both of these questions, I guess, fall, uh, talk about, I guess, what a protected class might be. Um, he, he asks, many applications are online. Does this not give opportunity for discrimination? And also, are employers allowed to ask about applicants' credit status or history? Mm, that's an interesting question. I think that online applications have changed things. Um, you're not allowed to ask uh, about the race of an applicant uh, of an applicant. And so, you know, if you're seeing questions on ap- online application forms that are discriminatory or uh, can be seen as discriminatory, I would ask that you bring those to the attention um, of the EEOC. Uh, with regard to credit, uh, you know, you can ask about credit, but we all know that um, credit can be used in a discriminatory manner. In fact, one of the biggest cases of note out of the EEOC was our case against BMW that was brought out of our Charlotte district office, and we uh, were successful in obtaining a consent decree in which we were able to set forth that uh, the way that BMW was using credit applications had a discriminatory impact on African-American applicants. So I would say, um, you know, everything is based upon a case-by-case basis. If you feel that something is discriminatory, it's best to, uh, again, contact an EOC counselor. Uh, and so that, if you, so that if, if you do feel there's discrimination, you can file a timely charge. Um, sometimes uh, dis- discrimination goes unchecked because folks miss the uh, time deadline uh, in which to file a charge. And in the um, Mississippi and Alabama, that time limit is 180 days. Now in Florida, uh, there is a, a state agency in which folks have 300 days to file a charge. But uh, I would encourage you that if you feel you're a victim of discrimination, to contact an EOC counselor and at least initiate a charge inquiry. Remember that EEOC website. It is not hard at all. EEOC.gov. We're taking your questions on our email address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. What issues fall under employment discrimination? I've got a list. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Thank you for being a part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, remember you can listen to the whole show on the website inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. Hey, YouTube, we need y'all to go and subscribe to our YouTube channel, MPB Think Radio. All the local shows are there on the YouTube channel, MPB Think Radio. Go ahead and subscribe. That way you know when one posts up. I'm Liz Gill. I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. At 11 a.m. Central Time on Tuesdays, following our over-the-air broadcast, you can hear Southern Remedy, relatively speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. All right, here is a list of employment discrimination types. Age, disability, equal compensation, genetic information, harassment, national origin discrimination, pregnancy discrimination, race color discrimination, religious discrimination, retaliation, sex and sexual harassment. And as our guest, Marsha Rucker, attorney with the EEOC, has mentioned before, if you're not sure, contact the EEOC at their website, eeoc.gov. And that website is great, Liz. Um, in fact, researching for the show, you can find out, like, for example, I asked about age discrimination. There's a link that tells you exactly what age discrimination is, uh, what sexual harassment is, and, and, and you know, how to deal with that uh, with the EOC. Um, but one that I was really curious about, Marjorie, and this has kind of got to be a more modern era issue, and that is uh, they, my, my employer can't discriminate against me based on my genetic information. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and what that's all about? Yes, uh, the genet- uh, Genetic uh, Information and Employment Act, was our. it's our most recent uh, act. It was passed in 2009, and uh, it, it's interesting. Um, it's interesting uh, because... Uh, You know, first of all, uh, as a new act, um, you know, people are still trying to understand what it is. So, again, I I would encourage if you you feel like something is amiss that you contact us for for counseling. But basically what it is is an employer can't discriminate against you on their belief that you may acquire some future illness. For example, uh, maybe they uh, maybe disclose to them that your mother you have to take leave away because your mother has breast cancer. Well, they can't then in turn discriminate against you because they believe you might become a liability because you might acquire breast cancer. And so, um, you know, and they also can't force you to take genetic testing. Um, 
they can't ask about your your family's medical history in, in a, a post-offer medical inquiry. For example, uh, you know, you'll get sometimes uh, employers will ask you uh, to fill out a questionnaire and they'll say, has your mom ever had heart disease? Is your father diabetic? Well, we take the view that these types of questions are discriminatory under under uh, GINA. It's, it's so, it really is so interesting. We had a, a show on with... Um, my colleague Stacy Lantain, who does intellectual property law, about the use of genetic information and the sale of genetic information when people do testing on Ancestry and, and uh, other uh, you know genetic testing websites. So it's, it's really really kind of a, a total change from the usual discrimination that we think about in in, uh, in employment, but important important as well. Uh, now talk a little bit about, if you don't mind. Um, prohibited practices we on your website um the list of uh, uh things that employers can't discriminate based on but then there's also a link to prohibited practices so what are what are some of the prohibited practices that employers need to avoid uh if you're talking with regard to gina specifically it's asking about uh, uh genetic information um uh, to purchase genetic information the, under that specific act, those are prohibited practices. If you're asking about other statutes, well, um, I think as, as we've discussed and as provided on our, our website, uh, anytime an employer uses an impermissible basis such as race to deny a person uh, a job opportunity or an employment opportunity or take some type of adverse action, uh, we would constitute that constitutes discrimination. Um, pay, for example, if uh, men and women are performing substantially the same job, but the man is paid more, uh, we would take the view that that's discriminatory under our EPA um, statute. And so uh, there, there's many prohibitive practices um, uh, that can constitute discrimination, and more importantly, um, uh, retaliation. That's probably uh, the biggest charge in terms of volumes that we see, uh, meaning the underlying act an employer may have taken against an employee may not constitute discrimination. But after an employer is apprised that the employee has engaged in protected activity and then they take some other action, it's retaliatory, it's retaliation. And we take a very dim view of retaliation. Um, and, you know, retaliation uh, is something we enforce under all of our statutes. Now, you know, I, I know that when we post uh, a job at the university, we, we actually have it approved by HR here to make sure that we're doing the right things. Are there things I can't put in an ad um, when I'm, uh, you know, seeking someone uh, to fill a job? Yeah, well, for, for, for sure. I mean, you can't request, you, you can't even bow to customer preference. And when we talk about the gig economy and employment agencies, uh, you know, even though the employment agency may have anti-discrimination policies, if they bow to the will of customer preference, we would say that that's discrimination, meaning you can't say, I want all young people or I don't want people of color 
or, you know, I, I don't want women. Uh, we still, and believe it or not, 2021, where we see um, advertisements for positions where they're saying we we seek some good men or we, you know, we, we seek strong good men uh, to fill positions. And uh, again, you can't bow or, or fall to the whim of um, customer preference uh, that can still constitute discrimination. And what about, uh, you know, one other thing that's kind of come up uh, fairly more, I mean, it seems to me it's been in the news more recently is, is dress code, where employers have certain dress codes and can they have a dress code? And and what if, what if I practice, uh, you know, I have a religious belief that requires me to wear a head covering uh, or even even a, a face covering in, in some respects. Um, how do we how do we work, work within that? Can that employer have the dress code? Do they have to work with that employee? Well, employers certainly can have dress codes, and particularly if they relate to safety, but they can't discriminate based upon religion. For example, one of our uh, most notable cases in recent years was the Supreme Court case Abercrombie uh, that we brought against Abercrombie and Fitch that went all the way to the Supreme Court involving a woman's uh, right because of her religion to wear a hijab. And uh, she had applied for a position at uh, Abercrombie and Fitch Children's Store, and the employer didn't want her to wear her hijab. And so uh, we said that it was discriminatory, um, that, that, of course, the employer could have a dress code, but they couldn't violate somebody's right to practice their religion. And so we were successful in that action. And so I would just caution employers to be mindful of when they're implementing dress codes and also grooming policies. One of the uh, most important cases I think that I've worked out on in my uh, career with the EEOC is a case against CMS management that did go to the 11th Circuit. Um, uh, the 11th Circuit um, denied it. However, uh, I think that case was instrumental in uh, forming the basis for all the crown acts that you're seeing across the country, whereas state and local authorities uh, realize that uh, having certain grooming standards, i.e. a prohibition against braids or... Marsha, I wish we could hear more all about that. You were getting to something really interesting uh, in addition to the rest of the show. But we need to go. Thank you for listening to In Legal Terms. This is Professor Richard Gershon from Ole Miss Law School. I'm Liz Gill. Join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 